Hey friends, welcome again to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all other Bible-loving folk. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week we are bringing you the story from Genesis 2 and 3 of the fall. Dun, dun, dun. It's for March 1st. It's a fabulous month because my birthday may or may not be in that month. And Tim McNinch is bringing us some insights this week into this text, which is so well-known, perhaps almost too well-known. What do you have for us, Tim? Uh, this is the, the original sin, so uh, what do you want, how do you want to get into it? Yeah, I think uh, it's helpful when trying to preach a really uh, well-known text like this to try to make it less well-known. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, this is being at the beginning, people that want to read through the Bible at least get this far. So <laughs> before they bail, when they get to, you know, all of the laws and whatnot, and a or bunch the begats. of begats. Yeah, right. Yes, yes. So uh, this is right near the beginning, and it's really fascinating and vivid prose. Here's where I would say, uh, just to jump right into a, a, a preaching tip would be to try to take this familiar text and make it a little less familiar to people. You could say something like, this is a text that's often talked about as the explanation for where sin comes from. But I think it's actually answering a more basic and fundamental question. What does it mean to be human? Mm. That's nice. I like that. You know, the question, what else does this text have to say? What else might this text breathe? Um, so where do you go with that? Yeah, I think I would start with uh, a little uh, Hebrew help. No, what a new, one, new, new direction for us. <laughs> and that's always, you know, if you, if you need to make a text unfamiliar to your there congregation, you just start throwing out some <laughs> Hebrew. But I sheet bara Elohim. <laughs> so there's a couple things that I would like to point out. Uh, first of all, uh, the lectionary kind of chops this up where we get to the in chapter two there, the prohibition from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it jumps to uh, where the the people do eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, but one thing that they uh, – and that's fine. You can make that jump. It can, it's kind of nice to have that earlier part in two to set it up. But I wouldn't cut out the last verse of chapter 2, verse 25, where it says that the, the two of them, the man and the woman, were naked and they felt no shame. And that's that's important because their their nakedness becomes a theme that comes up in chapter three. Once, you know, again, spoiler alert, <laughs> once they eat from the tree, all of a sudden they realize what? That they're naked. So that sets that up really well. So I would include at least verse 25 there. That absolutely gives you the uh, extra plus that your confirmation students will be totally interested right away. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And uh, just to say a little word about nakedness. Uh, the Hebrew word there, arumim, uh, that's the plural, the singular is arum. And this is uh, not only mentioned of the people, but it also says that the serpent, the snake in the garden was, uh, you might literally say, more naked than the other creatures. Mm. <laughs> it uses that same word, arum, which has sort of a dual meaning. It, it, in addition to meaning naked, uh, arum also means, you know, crafty or wise or really, you know, just really smart. Mm. Mm. And so in a way, this, it's presenting this snake, who, by the way, is not Satan in this text. <gasps> That can be, you know, a matter for later interpretation. That's fine. But in the text itself, the right. snake is just a snake. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There's nothing. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I think that's, you know, the first time that we really hear about Satan as kind of an adversarial figure, though not the Satan that we think of in the New Testament, is all the way in Job. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, Tim. It is a talking snake, but, you know, that's <laughs> okay. That is what it is. However, uh, in, a, in a way, this is a play on words of that ahum. It's uh, making a connection between the nakedness of the people and the craftiness or, or wisdom of the snake by using the same word for both. It's also, in a way, a play on the, the snake itself as a character. I, th- I think it's the, the way that the snake sheds its skin. It, it like, takes off its, mm. clothes, its outer garment. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is, in a way, more naked than the other animals <laughs> you know, in, in the creation. And so there's a lot of just fun wordplay here. So you don't think then that the serpent was a bad guy? Well, you know, the the snake does get punished for leading the people astray. But I don't get a sense from just reading the text that that the snake is a tempter by nature. Mm-hmm. It's not presented that way. It's presented as wise, as smart, as, as knowing something that to this point the humans don't, mm-hmm. which is that the the nature of this prohibited tree is that it's a tree that gives knowledge. It gives understanding of all sorts of things. I think that's fascinating to think about, though, this idea that the serpent gave into its own temptation, too, which was to show off its intelligence or to show off its knowledge and um, that it needed instruction as much as the humans did in the dangers of that. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah, in a way, the snake was too smart for its own good. Yeah, right, right, mm-hmm. right. And that that sort of haughtiness led it, led yeah. it astray as, as well. So how about the tree? What do you want to say about that tree? What what kind of tree was it? Was it oak? It was a palm tree, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, no, it was it was good and bad tree. Oh, good and bad tree. Good and bad my, fruit. That's my favorite. Yeah, so etz hadat tovara. Da'at there in Hebrew means knowledge. And uh, that's an important word, though, because it's not just sort of head knowledge. You might have already heard this, that, you know, when, when the man... Uh, dot knows his wife, babies come. So <laughs> this is this is not just knowing about somebody or knowing about things, but this is uh, an experiential, intimate kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so when it's talking about the knowledge of good and bad or good and evil here, it's not just uh, an intellectual knowledge of mm-hmm. these things, but it's about the experience of uh, all sorts of things, both good and bad, that are sort of symbolically captured in this particular mm-hmm. tree in the garden. Boy, that makes that this story. I, I'm this. I'm having a lot of fun today because that makes this story even more sad to think about. Um, not only the the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of the experience of good and evil. I just think of as a parent. I had a moment with both my kids where they started to get just out of the infant stage, and I felt really sad thinking about how they were going to be hurt, you know, in in any way, you know, skinny Mm -hmm. knee or struggles with friends. And there's that moment where you do want to protect them from experiencing that good and evil. And that's really that's really neat, Tim. Right. And and so there's kind of I mean, this is a story of the coming of age of humanity Mm. from this sort of innocence and ignorance into a knowledge of all sorts of experience. And in in fact, just to give a, you know, hoity-toity technical term here. This good and bad, tov, uh, could be seen as uh, what we call a merism. You want to spell that? M-E-R-I-S-M. Mm-hmm. And, and basically, that's just giving two opposites in order to encapsulate everything in between. Nice. So talking about the uh, knowledge of or experience of good and evil or good and bad, 
is basically a way of talking about the knowledge of everything mm-hmm. on the spectrum, all the way from good to bad. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, this is a tree of omniscience. It's a tree that has uh, a, the character of God mm-hmm. who knows everything, good and bad. And so in that sense, what the snake says about the tree was right on. That when they eat of this fruit, they'll be like God. They'll know from good to bad. Know and experience. And then, and, and I just want to hover over one thing you just said, which was that God is omniscient, which means God knows all good and evil, which if we continue with that idea means God experiences all of it. And wow, that's kind of a, a heavy moment mm-hmm. in the sermon, too, if you're thinking of God wanting to protect humanity from that. Yeah, God knows what's at stake here. Yeah, intimately. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm really loving sitting with that image of God, but you started out by claiming that this text is actually talking about what it means to be human. So how do you get there from where we are now? Uh, in a way, I'm looking at the type of passage that this is, the type of uh, literature. So in a way, this is a lot like a kind of mythological folktale. There are certain elements here um, that fit with folkloric types of stories. There's the ways that humans and, and gods interact in those types of stories. Uh, often there are talking animals mm. in, in old folk tales. Uh, the human characters themselves are kind of generic. Here we have Adam, the, the earthling from the earth, uh, Adam from the Aduma. And Eve is just... She's called Isha. She's Isha for out of Ish, she was taken, just like Adam is Adam for out of Adama, he was taken. Right. And so in in a way, they're both just sort of, they they stand in for all of humanity. And the other uh, feature here, which is worth uh, pointing out, is that there are all sorts of little, what we call etiologies, little explanations of the origins of modern phenomena. And one of those would have to be something about this idea of how humans came to have this intimacy, this knowledge, this experience, right? That's right. I mean, the the modern experience of humanity is that we have this sort of moral sense of the world, this conscience in a way, and even just a consciousness that distinguishes us from what we can tell about other creatures. We seem to be different. Mm. And so in a way, this is a story that tries to answer the question, how do we get to be more like God in that sense than we are like other creatures? Mm. Okay, this is interesting because in Genesis 1, it talks about us being made in the image of God. So there's almost an elevation that happens here. Would you say there's a demotion going on here or or a, a tension with Genesis 1? It's definitely chapters? a different perspective. Mm. And uh, it's probable that these two stories about the creation of the world and of humanity come from different sources mm. and were brought together here at some point in the um, compilation of these holy scriptures. You can bring these together into conversation for sure, but they, they have slightly different perspectives. Like you say, Genesis 1 kind of talks about the, the godlikeness of humanity being baked into mm. how God made us in the first place, to bear the image of God, to have the likeness of God. Whereas in this story, it's coming at it from a slightly different angle. The The part of our God-likeness that's being emphasized here is our sense of of a moral universe and of having to make choices, ambiguous choices within an ambiguous world. Mm. And from this, the perspective of this story, this isn't something that was 
sort of baked into how God made us. It's actually an attribute of God, God's knowledge, God's experiential knowledge of all things good and bad that we took Mm. for ourselves. It wasn't given to us. We took it against God's command. So there's almost an inherent discontent baked into humanity in this story then. I think so. I think that's part of what's going on here is that the the modern experience that this is referencing is our sense of discontent, of always wanting something more, some, something more than what's been given to us by God. Mm. And in a way, that is sort of the root of what we would call sin mm. or, you know, the fallenness of humanity is our not being content with what God has given us. Mm. I think that's right on. I always struggle to talk about this in churches sometimes because whenever I talk about um, Genesis 3, usually what's come up, what comes up is, well, that's where God gave us free will. Hmm. And I think that's the exact opposite of what this story is talking about. First of all, because like you said, Tim, we weren't given anything. We yeah. took something <laughs> that we were not meant to have that God did not intend us to have. So I think what this story about much more is about much more than free will is the consequences when humans think we have free will. And the fact that when given freedom, typically what we do is choose what's worse for us every time. It's kind of coming back to that you, what you were talking about, that gray world, that morally ambiguous world that this story kind of sets up. Yeah, and I think that that's an area where you really could take this into a sermon. We all experience that same sort of uh, discontent from time to time, maybe all the time, <laughs> <laughs> of always wanting a little bit more and it's uh, it's hard to learn to be content with what we have and with what God's provided for us. Mm. And so there's part of a sermon that could be preached on this text. Absolutely. Uh, I was thinking that one specific area where that seems to be really uh, prominent and relevant in our own context has to do with how we treat the created order. Mm. And so th- this is a great text to use for a sermon about our responsibility to the creation, our ecological responsibility. Uh, Too often we get greedy and we take more than our fair share and we seek our own benefit rather than uh, tending to the, the balance in creation for which we are responsible as God's gardeners, as we're called in chapter two there. And when we do take more than was given to us, there are dire consequences for the creation. And, uh, you know, we can see that in our own experience of climate change and the, uh, the problems that that's causing both for humans and for the rest of the created order. Mm-hmm. Our sort of godlike experiential knowledge of good and bad makes us accountable for how we treat the created order. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, starting from, from that sort of a, a sense of things, you could, you could preach about our responses to climate change, uh, or you could take it in another direction and, and preach about our addictions to accumulating stuff hmm. uh, and about learning to be content with having enough or about, you know, how our churches spend our money, hmm. uh, you know, how we're, what we're doing with the resources that have been given to us and who we're trying to benefit with them. So this could be a, a, a sermon uh, about generosity as well. There's lots of different directions you could take it. 
I think that's really good. I, I think any of the, I mean, I, I just, I really had fun listening to you kind of walk through this text. I think any of the directions that you brought up would be uh, great sermons, especially because this is such a well-known text. And by making it a little bit strange in that way, could really sit with your folks over the week and, and have it be something that they really chew on for a while. So thanks, Tim, for some great ideas. Sure. If you liked what you heard, head on over to firstreadingpodcast.com. We've got more there. We've got past episodes. We've got links to special guests. And you can also find, I don't know what else I was going to say, love and happiness. If you have the time, tell one friend about this podcast, one person that you think would enjoy listening to us talk about Genesis 2 and 3, maybe even two people. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy preaching.